This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 23, covering Chasing the Dragon from September 9th, 2011 from Indianapolis, Indiana at the Salvation Army Community Center. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on our own dedicated feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to contribute to the show, there's no obligations and it would certainly be appreciated. Just click the link if you want to donate and in the show notes, and I'll take you to redcircle.com, and you can make a donation. It could be one-time or reoccurring, and again, no obligation, but we certainly appreciate it. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. I'm joined, as always, by Case Lowe. In case, earlier this year, in 2011, they were in Spears territory in the Carolinas. Now they're in low territory. How does it feel like that before you got back into wrestling, there was a Dragon Gate USA show in your general environment? It really bums me out that I have still to this day not seen anyone on the card we're discussing today. Hold on, let me, I guess I've seen BJ Whitmer live. Great. Um, <laughs> Sammy. I've, I, yeah, I have seen plenty of Sammy Callahan. I've seen Chuck Taylor live. And I, well, I, I saw, I saw Pocket at, at All Out last year. So I, I've seen. A few of the guys on the show we're discussing today in person, but I've seen none of the Drangate proper talent. Again, with maybe the exception of Pac, if you want to count him. But yeah, no, it hurts to know that that I I Google mapped the address uh, from this arena, if you want to call it that, to where I am currently <laughs> living, and it is uh, it's about a 25 minute drive. So knowing that Naruki Doi was hailing the same streets that I have been on before was upsetting because I, I was not in the building for this show uh, because I did not know of the existence of Dragon Gate USA at this point. But had I had I known, Mike, I would have been there. It was This was a show that this was not an iPay-per-view. I think this was my first time watching the show. This is the first, I think, DGUSA show that I do not have any memory whatsoever on. And I'd remember because this show, you know... You call it an arena, a community center. It had some heavy IWA Mid South vibes to how it was laid out. They did. This is the first show that they didn't even bother bringing their own lights. They used the overhead lights here, so it, it gave it a different, a definite vibe on this show, and it ended up being a really fun one. But we saw some stuff to get into before we get there, case because we're this show happened on September 9th, twenty eleven. I remember nine nine nineteen ninety nine because that's when the Sega Dreamcast came out. You probably did, I was, did not. I, I was six months old. Okay. Oh fuck. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for cursing there, but that was all right. Okay. So 
but as I was meaning to say, we're going from June to September. There's a lot of stuff going on here. We try to keep it to like what's happening for the weekend on one episode. Then we go to Japan and we go to USA. But because this happens at this time, and because of the stuff we talked about last time when we looked into Japan, we really have to cover some stuff, some Japan stuff here. So, KS, take it away here with the timeline. Yeah, uh, uh, next week we will do a much more in-depth version, or I guess coverage, of Kobe World 2011, uh, the Cork and Hall shows, the Summer Adventure Tag League. Uh, That will all come next week. We'll briefly discuss it on this episode, but, you know, next week is, is the time for that. But this week is the time for 6, 8, 11, Gate of Maximum Tokyo Cork and Hall, a show that opened with Don Fuji and Super Shisa defeating Gamma and Rich Swan, Naoki Tanizaki and Tomahawk TT. They defeated Susumu Yokosuka and Kagatora. Kenichiro Rai defeated Taku Iwasa in the Mike Spears Money Mark match, because uh, if Mike Spears had money, he would be booking that match all over the country. Cyber Kong, oh, they'd be teaming there. They, they would not be yes. facing off against each other. We'd begin the the Iowa reunion tour. It's scary though that if we if we were able to fund our vanity promotion, we'd be main eventing with Orion Awasa versus the Young Bucks, and that would be our dream. Because I don't know if that match ever happened, and if it did, I don't know if it was filmed. I it happened during a, a summer adventure tag league for sure. Yeah, I, I guess I gotta I gotta look through and see what I've got to see if that match existed somewhere, but. I know for a fact uh, Cyber Kong and Ricochet uh, versus Dragon Kid and Pac, that match exists, and that match ended when Ricochet pinned Pac with the backslide driver. And I told you all two episodes ago that there's a Ryo Saito and Genki Horiguchi versus Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk match set up for this show, and I told you to remember that match because, Mike, what happened when Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk hit the ring? Well, first, it was the Shingo Takagi hit the ring. And, of course, on this show is the official start of Junction 3. Yes. Junction 3 comes out. They have the really awesome theme, which I remember United Air was playing on watching Indianapolis. Like, hell yeah, this theme was, like, one of the low-key best uh, themes, stable themes they've ever had. And But they're all dressed in green because Masaki Mochizuki's wearing green. Yoshino loves green, too, so it makes sense. But then we had Shingo Takagi come out by himself. And then we got the Dark Side Hulk entrance. And it was the crowd reacted to because it's been a long time since Dark Side Hulk has made a return. I think the last time he did it might have been t- 2009. Like it's been a good while since Dark Side came out. And then coming from the bleachers was Dark Side Hulk. Like looked like it was peeking up and going through the bleachers. But then the lights go up as BB Hulk is attacking Shingo Takagi. In case you got a chance to like, we, we both rewatched this angle in the ensuing match because this is one of those things that. That, to be honest, outside of a Corkin that has a title match, this is probably one of the most important Corkin Hall shows of recent memory. And how would you describe the attack that BB Hulk lays on Shingo Takagi? It's on the short list of the most vicious things that have ever been done in this company in the ring. I mean, you can talk about Don Fuji stretching young boys, and you can talk about Masaki Mochizuki on February 6, 2005, when he about kicked Ryo Saito's face off of his head in an Open the Dreamgate classic. But in terms of violence and destruction, in a way that this company just does not do, BB Hulk turning on Shingo Takagi, turning heel, 
and bloodying him. It is a shocking thing to watch. There is just no real comparison in the 20-year history of Toriyaman and Dragon Gate. Nothing has been done quite like this. And then what follows is, you know, they, they put one of the greatest angles and they stacked it on top of just another just great moment in company history. If you're making the top 25 moments of the Dragon system, this whole segment has to be on that list. Yeah, so when we say that Hulk has bloodied Shingo Takagi, that might be underselling it. It is, he first, like, attacks him, and when he's down, uh, Blood Warriors comes out, and they hold up a chair to, to Shingo Takagi's head. He does the first flash through the chair, breaks the chair into Shingo Takagi. He starts bleeding even more profusely. Uh, it turns out that Dark Hulk, if I did not mention earlier, was Naoki Tanazaki. He brings down the ball of wine. Uh, BB Hulk then, like, starts drinking wine, spitting the wine, starts taking all the blood, smearing on his chest. Might He might have drunk, drank some of Shingo Takagi's blood all the while then for like a solid like five-minute period. It just was an absolute destruction. Finally, Junction 3 comes out. They are helped out, and they have to like bandage up Shingo Takagi's head, and then they, they, they start having a microphone back and forth. Suddenly, there is a Dr. Muscle that came out, and it turned out to be Gamma, who was recently exiled from Blood Warriors. He asked to join junction three and then gamma and mochizuki end up being pretty much on the same team the remainder of their career they will be on different stables at times but they're basically have been in the same affiliation and they challenge blood warriors to match because now there are two sides so we should have a big match and they noticed it was like five on four and they said oh no it's not five on four we know that junction three has gamma masaki mochizuki masato yoshino a very bandaged up shingo takagi and Yamato there, well, then suddenly be naked hit. And then a new man came out, someone who has forged over the last 14 months in America, someone who was basically left to left in America and said, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll talk to you when we talk to you. But then he had one of the most outstanding excursions in wrestling history as a Kirtozawa with bright blonde hair, a crazy beard, wearing a wearing a Blood Warriors t-shirt and new tights hit the ring and the crowd was it it wasn't like a huge pop but the crowd was stunned to see that this guy who was exiled by Cyber Kong in a loser is exiled match at Dead or Alive 2009 came back this way it's I, I mean it's it's words can't do it justice because Akira Tozawa comes out and he comes across like he is a superstar and it is an an aura that surrounded him until November of 2016 at Gate of Destiny when he left the company and you could argue that it continued through at least some of his first attempts to find success in the Cruiserweight Classic in WWE and NXT it's obviously not there now it's all been darkened by a ninja costume but I was looking back at some cage match results uh, last week, and it's like, you know, Akira Tozawa, he held the Cruiserweight title at a time when 205 Live was pretty good. And, and you know, it's not what I wanted from Tozawa. Even adjusting my expectations, I still think there is more that could be done with him to be a success in America. 
but it is all built off of this excursion that we've gone through ever since Open the Northern Gate 2010, which you can go back and listen to. That is the start of his excursion when they... Uh, it, it's almost the, the Dragon Gate equivalent of, of Shima going out for smokes and never returning. They just left Tozawa uh, to fend for himself. And, you know, he toured in Mexico for a little bit. He toured, you know, Anarchy Championship Wrestling in Texas. He became a star in PWG. He worked AIW and obviously became a homegrown success in Dragon Gate USA. And then he, he stepped through that apron and is a, a man-possessed, a monster, someone who was ready to take on the company, and more specifically, take on Junction 3. Yeah, and the big thing that came out of this match then became like that 10-man tag match that was clipped, sadly, because that's how they did Corkins and that's how they did Infinity back then. It just was like a match where, if you think about like the Japanese crowd, they did cover a little bit of DGUSA on Infinity. It's not a lot. It's just like enough, like, this is what's happening in the United States. They see this guy who basically was drummed out of the company come back 14 months later and is just a man possessed. He wins the match. He wins the match with the, his uh, his captured German suplex. It was, I believe it was on Gamma he pinned. I'm just thinking this all the time. It was Gamma that he pinned in that match, right? Yes. Yeah, he pinned in the match, and then suddenly he takes the microphone and he immediately declares war against the Kagi Yamato. And it sets up what uh, stuff that we'll talk about next month as... Then the July Corkin is an insane card as well. But over the 14 months he was gone, he suddenly now is in a main event match, and he's getting the main event push in Akira Tozawa. Now, now Japanese crowds knew what American wrestling fans were knew at the time as they were watching him. They knew that Akira Tozawa was a superstar. And in a period of an hour, because this is a very short, short Corkin, it was a five-match Corkin, in a time period that the company usually goes seven or eight matches. And that launches really in earnest. Like we've talked about this now pretty much case for like the last three months. Like we're getting to Junction 3 and Blood Warriors. We're getting Junction 3 and Blood Warriors. Now the Mochizuki army is no more. We have Junction 3. We have Blood Warriors. And for the next until um, February of 2013. 2012, yes. I thought it was 2013. Oh, you're right. It's 2012. You're right. I apologize. So for for the next eight months is probably, like, some of the most interesting television that Dragon Gate has put together. Yeah. And it all starts really from this night. It's considered a golden era. I think you look at 2005, 2011, 2015 as your three pillars of, like, oh, my God, everything they're doing right now, or at least most things they're doing are really working. So that leaves us with, like Mike said, Blood Warriors in the blue and red and Junction 3 in the green. Blood Warriors is made up of Shima Naruki Doi, BB Hulk, Akira Tozawa, Yasushi Kanda, Ryo Saito, Genki Horiguchi, Cyber Kong, Ricochet, KZ, Naoki Tanazaki, and Tomahawk TT. In Junction 3 is Mochizuki, Yoshino, Yamato, Shingo Takagi, Susuma Yokosuka, Pac, Gama, Dragon Kid, Kagatora, and Super Shisa. So that is the big event in Japan. As we go along on this episode, we'll be discussing the title matches that occurred between uh, the June 8th Corkin and where we are the second week in September uh, back in America. And then next week, we will do a, a deeper dive into some of those shows. But before we get to that, Austin Aries, who spent about seven months in Dragon Gate USA, certainly making his presence felt one way or another. Well, on June 13th, 
he defeated Kid Cash and Dragon Gate USA alumni Jimmy Rave in a triple threat match on TNA Impact and thus earned his way into a fatal four-way match on the July 10th Destination X pay-per-view where Austin Aries defeated Loki Zima Ion and Jack Evans for an Impact Wrestling contract. And hey, all of that with with Austin Aries for this long being probably the worst major star to come through. And I say worse than that if you've listened to the last nine episodes or so, you you get where I'm coming from here. He's gone. Yeah, gone. And it's just like, what are we even doing here with him? Well, well, he leaves from what is, I think, unequivocally the the worst period of his career and then becomes, other than early Samoa Joe, the best thing TNA has ever done is the Austin Aries X Division into Option C and subsequent world title run for Austin Aries. It's other than early undefeated Joe, the best thing they ever did. And it's something that I wonder, like, it all went down during that last weekend, the uh, anniversary weekend, but I wonder, like, how much they all were super aware of it, you know? Like, he pretty much just jumps in there, and this is after a time where he did not make Tough Enough, and he talked about leaving wrestling because of Tough Enough, and then he does, like, one mocap thing for WWE, and that's it. And it's just one of those things that he then jumps to TNA, and it pretty much adds, like, the thing that the rest of his career will be known for. Yeah, it's 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 a peer that I love. I mean, Impact Wrestling, I really influenced me as a fan in 2012 when I was getting back into wrestling, and that is almost exclusively due to Aries and me just being completely captivated by. I I'm pretty sure I I turned on Impact right before he won the title, and then seeing him just explode and be magnificent, but the, the world title when he beat Bobby Roode, and just seeing him from there, I mean, that's stuff I think super highly of, and, you know, for whoever Aries is as a person, which it, it's, you know, he's bad on a number of levels, to this day, one of my favorite wrestlers ever. I want to, especially when it comes to American wrestlers, I mean, there are very few people I enjoy more than Austin Aries. I just hated him in Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, and he brought down the shows. He didn't it wasn't like a thing where like after Moxley left, you're like, okay, that's fine. And with Brody Lee, when Brody Lee signs, you're like, okay, like was, were there more things they could do with Brody Lee? Sure. Yes. But is this okay? But is this is but is it something that Brody Lee came in and left the company better? I think Brody Lee did. I think Brody Lee did. Austin Aries, you can't say that for. And I think other than like Brian Kendrick, when we're gonna talk about like this is a Cardinal Sin, Austin Aries and Dragon Gate USA is an unequivocal Cardinal Sin case. And when you like look at it, he we're going to remember him as like one of the worst people to come through the, the promotion and someone who dragged down the promotion when he was a part of it. Well, speaking of Brody Lee, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter on June 20th says Brody Lee uh, said his doctors believe he has a partially torn ACL and a partially torn MCL from a knee injury suffered on the June 5th New York City Dragon Gate USA show. He's getting an MRI and a decision will be made regarding surgery after the results come in, but he'll be out of action for a minimum four weeks and it could be significantly longer depending on whether or not he needs surgery and what type of surgery. Mike, do we know, did he ever get uh, that knee operated on at least at, at this point in time? So... I remember watching a shoot interview that he does with Eddie Kingston that he like talks about his knee and he talks about that. And it's something that's like, I don't remember specifically if he got 
a knee. I don't specifically remember if he got a surgery because the thing about the surgery is that you would think that it would be like a full reconstruction and those take forever. And especially for a guy of his size, him getting that reconstruction surgery changes a whole lot of, of what he could be. So I don't think he gets that surgery. I no, don't believe. Uh, I, I don't believe he did either. It, it is a bummer, though, because he's out of action from that June 5th show until this weekend of shows that we're discussing. So he missed one of the hottest summers in terms of action in Dragon Gate history, whereas, you know, we'll talk about more next week. Rich Swan begins to find his own in Japan, and then it, it seems like they wanted to do a lot more with Brody Lee, but just due to timing because of injury, and then because of him signing, they never got to do it. Uh, who knows? He could have been included on the June 18th and June 19th Hakata Star Lanes Champion Gate shows that just to run down the title matches real quick, we saw Pac retain the Open the Brave Gate title against Ricochet in their second singles match in Japan of 2011. Pac has won both of them up to this point. And Gamma, Yoshino, and Yamato defeating BB Hulk, Shima, and Naruki Doi for the Venkat Triangle Gate Championships. And then on the next night, Pac and Dragon Kid defeat Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito for the Twin Gate belts. And Misaki Mochizuki pulls a miracle out of his ass and brings Yasushi Kanda to a match of the year contender as he retains his Open the Dream Gate Championship. Yeah, like, for all of how they set up that match and how weird it was, it ended up being, like, probably Kanda's best singles match for the for the remainder of his career. Like I don't think Kanda's had another Oh, and no, nothing. Match. I don't I don't think anything close quite honestly. I mean, I don't even know what would be in second place, but I know this is a definitive first place. What what intrigues me here, what is intriguing to me here rather, is I look at that Triangle Gate team, Gamma, Yoshino and Yamato, and we'll go over what they did at Kobe World. I guess I guess now cuz at Kobe World, uh, they retained the titles over Cyber Kong, Naruki Doi and Kanda. Also on that show, and again, we'll dive into this show more next week because I think it is one of the, at worst, one of the five greatest Dragon Gate shows of all time. Uh, it should be noted that Kira Tozawa defeated Shingo Takagi in a singles match. Shima and Ricochet defeated Pac and Dragon Kid for the Open the Twin Gate belt in a five-star match, in my opinion. And in the main event, Masaki Moshizuki defeated BB Hulk for the uh, to retain the Open the Dreamgate title in what is a forward three-quarter star match, another match of the year contender there. But I, I, I want to talk about Yamato for just a second because his career is is just really strange. You know, he debuts as as a, a debut produced by Yasushi Kanda and is a young boy and then, you know, really hits the ground running with New Hazard. And there's about a three-year period there, 2008 to 2010, between New Hazard and Real Hazard and Kamikaze, where Yamato is the it guy and he is the man. And then Junction 3 happens. And then he and Takagi form uh, their unit afterwards. And it's just a cluster of a unit. They don't really have the right talent around them. And there's about a three-year stretch there, 2011 to 2013, where Yamato was there and he's, you know, winning the Twin Gate belt, but it's not Yamato. And then he joins Mad Blanky in the summer of 2013, and all of a sudden he's back. And that run leads into Berserk, and it leads in to Yamadoi, one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And then we see him win the Dreamgate belt as a babyface, and he slips off for another two or three years 
and it seems like now we are getting out of another Yamato funk, and his career has these weird ebbs and flows. And I just think Junction 3, for as many great guys, are highlighted in this Blood Warrior Junction 3 feud. You see the rise of Ricochet, Pac, and Rich Swan. You see Mochizuki. I just have one of the great title reigns of all time. Shima's great. Yoshino's great. Doi's great. Hulk's great. I don't think fondly of Yamato at this time period. There's not a lot of 2011 Yamato matches that I really like, and I, I don't know if you feel the same way, so I ask you now, what do you think about Yamato and Junction 3? So, like, I think with how this feud was set up in these two stables, that people are who would be ones in a normal lineup, one that had, like, four or five stables, they get kind of lost in the, in the shuffle. And I exceptionally think that uh, he was lost in the shuffle here. Completely. He, he feels like an afterthought, which is weird because it's Yamato. And it's something that, like, he does have, like, the after Akatsuki, he does turn into the Almighty and Omniscient, and it does revitalize his career. But he goes from someone being one of the first people who won the Dream Gate in their first shot to just kind of just there for a while. He does do the no ropes matches. No ropes matches are kind of cool just because of like how different they are. And it's something that I don't think that have translated. Like it, it's not like how we now see no ropes matches. You know, it's a different thing that when Dragon Gate did it and that kept them busy, but didn't keep them like useful, I would say. And it's a shame. It's a shame because really like when I think about like Junction 3, I don't think of... Uh, I don't think of Yamato much at all. I remember more that Yamato's going to get his haircut, and then you're like, oh, God, Yamato should never get his haircut ever again. So <laughs> It's something to monitor as we go along of just, like, right. so, there's so much good happening, and Yamato's not really a part of it, but there is a lot of good happening with Pac and Ricochet. The June 15th Dragon USA uh, Newswire, News Alert, whatever Gabe was calling it at the time, uh, he announces on June 15th that they will have a series of matches in September in Indianapolis, Chicago, and Milwaukee. Each event will have a different match type, and then on July 21st, he announces the stipulations, uh, with the first one being in Indianapolis, being a first-time-ever in Dragon Gate USA captain's fall match. Both Pac and Ricochet were told to pick teams for a six-man tag team match. However, the only way the match can end is if Pac or Ricochet gain the fall. Pac picked a team of high flyers to prove to Ricochet that he is not the best high flyer in the world. And obviously, Ricochet has chosen his Blood Warriors partner. So we get Pac, AR Fox, and Rich Swan versus Ricochet, Shima, and Akira Tozawa on this show. Next week, we'll be talking about the singles match between Pac and Rich Swan. And then two weeks from now, in Milwaukee... It is Open the United Gate versus Open the Twin Gate. Winner take all title versus title match. Pac and Masato Yoshino versus Ricochet and Shima. Yeah, and it's something that I feel like really helped build up the show, especially now that if you're someone that's just like following along with this, like Spike Mohican's coming in and being such like a really awesome team <laughs> is something that's like, because you're like, why is uh, Ricochet and Shima wearing the same tights? Why are they coming out with the Twin Gate belts? And I think this is when they changed Twin Gate belts too around this it, time. It, they definitely have the, what were the current Twin Gate belts until what, March of this year. Uh, it right. was it was the current incarnation. I know they at least have them by world uh, because there's uh, that, just that match is perfect. I've seen it so many times now. And I, I know for a fact that the, the, 
image that most people think of when they think of the Open the Twin Gate is at least present there. And yeah, like you said, uh, Ricochet kind of becomes uh, Shima Sito. And knowing how Shima thought about Ricochet, he was literally molding him in his own image. Right, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's when they started having the split tights, where one half of it was Shima's shorts with tassels, and the other part of it were long tights that Ricochet brought back out during his... uh, during his farewell to Dragon Gate, which everyone was like, you still have these tights? How'd you fit in these tights? <laughs> which is something that I will always remember as everyone's look on their face when he comes out that way, you know? And it's it, it's something that, like, as, like, when we talked about the show and we talked about, in the, about this weekend, we now are seeing a ricochet that's not dissimilar to the ricochet that was bra- that became the f- first ever Gaijin Open the Dream Gate champion. No, we are going this, is, this is the start of the ricochet that we came to know and love. Right, yeah. So that was about, that was definitely less than a year. Might have been like nine months that he became this. And that does like this. And now we're going to talk about how Rich Swan over three months completely transformed himself as well. And yeah. It, it's it's... interesting. I find this all really interesting, the way that like when people enter the dojo and they become these like incredible performers and we now like are seeing like ricochet will get bigger and bigger and you know, he'll eventually get to a certain point also as well where he will stop doing certain moves. But we are now seeing from September 25th, so actually almost an exact year, we have fully formed Ricochet. But now we are, we are having the molded Rick Swan, which I find incredibly fascinating. Yeah, I uh, we'll talk more about Swan when we talk about the main event of this show because he is outstanding there. I should also note, I hated the splits tight look, the the split tights look on Zack Ryder, but I do love the Spike Mohicans gear. I thought it added to their act. To pivot back to Japan just briefly, uh, 7-23, July 23rd, Kyoto KBS Hall, A.R. Fox makes his Japanese debut. He teamed with Gama and Yoshino in defeat to Horiguchi, Doi, and Kanda. I believe his only televised match of this first tour is on August 3rd when he loses a singles match in Corican Hall to Kagatora. And that August 3rd show facilitated the Summer Adventure Tag League, which wrapped up on August 7th in Nagoya, where this was the Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk vanity tournament. And they stormed the field and won the tournament on the 7th against Masaki Mochizuki and Yamato. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of became... The, the Summer Adventure Tag League is when Hulk and Akira became a thing. It's something like that a lot like previous like Akira Tozawa tag teams, like they have their time and that's it. And we are in the middle of Hulk and Akira. And it's something that's really, really cool. Like I, because like one thing we didn't mention earlier when Hulk turned, he basically this turn, he goes full dark side Hulk during the remainder of his heel run here. He comes out chugging wine. His hair is dyed black. He has black makeup on. He wears black tights. He does not have like the cut up shirt. But that becomes this here, which is completely different from the Hulk that we see now, which doesn't really even have like a name of what kind of character he's playing other than just being uh, kind of one of the goons. We have a note here that I went off the board for. It is not in the Dragon USA Newswire. It is not in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. It is something that I remembered happening around this time period, and I went to a source to verify it, and it happened on August 5th. Mike, do you know what could have possibly possibly been uploaded to the Dragon USA YouTube channel on Evolve, or not on Evolve, on August 5th, 2011? Was this the... Uh, I'm going to take a shot in the dark because of who we have on the show coming okay. up. 
Is this the official debut of the scene? It is It is not the official debut of the scene. A good guess, my friend. August 5th, 2011 marks the debut of the Drangit USA and Evolve Creative Common Reels. As Gabe oh, Sapolsky God. noted in the YouTube description, this is weirdly not mentioned in any of the news wires, but he says, we know there are video editors who want to make videos using Drangit USA and Evolve footage. We do have to copyright and protect our footage for a variety of reasons. However, now we are supplying footage for you to use in any manner you want in any videos you want. Feel free to use any clips in the Drangit USA and Evolve Creative Common Reels for your own editing use. You cannot use any DGUSA or Evolve footage that is not included in these common reels. There are seven of these. They are still up on YouTube. If you ever just want to watch essentially highlight packages of Drangit USA and Evolve, they are there for your viewing pleasure. The weird thing about this was, like, there certainly was a time where music videos were a big thing in wrestling. Especially oh, on God, like, the completely. internet. I mean, like, famously... Uh, I think Flip Kendrick was a big music video guy. I know that uh, Speedball Mike Bailey was. But, like, I don't remember, like, anyone ever really taking advantage of the Creative Com stuff. I think this is Gabe being Gabe and thinking, oh, this will help. And I don't think it really did whatsoever. And it's just kind of like a odd thing. Like, I know there are people who have made videos out of this stuff, but it's not. I feel like they felt like this is going to, like, make music videos and that's going to get people to get more into the, sh- get into the promotion, into the shows. It didn't happen. It is really bizarre to me that video editing software has never been more accessible, and yet there's never been fewer music videos in the wrestling landscape, which is a conversation for another time that I'm sure Mike and I will have at some point when we talk shop about video editing software. But Oh, I have a lot of opinions on video <laughs> editing software, and something some news came out today that made me very, very angry. So yes, we, we could have this conversation in the future. <laughs> Instead of making your blood boil, Mike, I will soothe you with the August 18th news that B.J. Whitmer will be making his Drangit USA debut as a part of the Open Invitational Elimination match in Indianapolis. He is the first entrant in a match that went on to include the hometown man Billy Rock, Sugar Dunkerton, Flip Kendrick, Mike Seidel, and Brody Lee. This is... Right after B.J. Whitmer returned to wrestling, he retired in 2008 and then resumed working at HWA, I, uh, yeah, HWA, AIW, there we go, and IPW during this time period. And I also noted that his, his last match before he retired was in Pro Wrestling Noah, which I did not remember B.J. Whitmer doing Noah tours. And his last match is on uh, June 1st, 2008, when B.J. Whitmer teams with Bison Smith and Nigel McGinnis in defeat to Akira Tawe, Mitsuhara Masawa, and Yoshinari Ogawa. And after that, Whitmer hung up the boots for three years and then decided to return to the Midwest independent scene. Yeah, I, I want to say, like, this happened kind of, like, abruptly. Like, I remember him retiring for a couple of years, and he definitely was on the way out of Ring of Honor at that time. Like, Hangman 3 were, were over, and boy, remember Hangman 3, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then he really, like, he disappears from Ring of Honor after that. He does a no-ropes barbed wire match with Jimmy Jacobs in April. He he wins the, he defenses his uh, Heartland Wrestling Association title against Nigel McGinnis. And then he does this uh, tour of, uh, he does this tour of Noah, and that's it until he comes back in 
wins the HWA title against someone named Jerome Phillips, who I don't know who that is. No, nor do I. Not not familiar with Jerome Phillips. Maybe uh, they've passed on. They've passed on. Uh, I'm, 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 okay. All right. Good to know. Thank you. Thank you for the abrupt warning. Uh, I was going to say maybe Jerome Phillips could have been in the tag team Discovery, which was announced on August 22nd in the Drangate USA Newswire. The tag team Discovery will conclude. On September 11th in Milwaukee, the Indianapolis show and the Chicago show will have matches with new undiscovered tag teams. The team that wins on 9-9 will advance to 9-10 to face another new team. The winners of the 9-10 match will then advance to Milwaukee where they will wrestle Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan of Ronin. So we will talk about that when we get to it, which opens up the show so it won't be long. And then our final note on the timeline this week, August 29th, it is announced that Indianapolis will get a doubleheader on September 9th with Insanity Pro Wrestling IPW. Uh, this show will feature a bonus card of Jake Christ versus Dustin Rays, Jesse Emerson versus uh, Christian Heim, I believe, and yes. uh, a match that aged poorly in Drake Younger versus Dave Christ. Yeah, IPW was the big Indianapolis indie up until like 2012. Yeah, they this stopped like running a, in 2012. This was like a big spot for uh, places that like people who would work in, they would come and work this promotion as well. And I know Chuck Taylor's talked a lot about it. Uh, looking at the bonus show, yeah, this is there's a reason why there was a no contest there. Uh, Christian Heim uh, busted his head open in the uh, in that match, and it was something that like. It made sense, like, at least with Indianapolis, like, Indies, it was the Indy in the area. I don't know if there are really any more. I know that now it's kind of the independent wrestling hotbed as of the time of recording. But IPW was, like, a big thing that, like, people would go work there, and then they'd go work Ian. They'd go work AIW. They maybe would work Heartland. Usually, Heartland is weird, though. Heartland did not always have a lot of the Indy talents. was a lot of just, like, Les Thornton guys. But IPW was its own thing. Did not believe I'd talk about Les Thornton on the show today. Is it Les but Thornton yeah, or no. Les Thatcher? Oh, you're Les Thatcher, right? Les I Thornton hate to, I so. hate to call you out like that. I was just no, you're absolutely for my right. Own good. You, no, you are absolutely right. Yeah, Les Thatcher was the uh, uh, promoter of uh, of Heartland Wrestling Association. Can't believe I blanked on that. Less, yeah, I, I, IPW was a strange promotion that I I'm very disappointed I was not around for their existence because. There's just I, you just look back on those cards and it was a weird collection of like IWA guys and then you know like they booked Irish Airborne versus the American Wolves at one point and then also uh, August well this is right before the show August twentieth two thousand eleven at their tenth anniversary show Irish Airborne Sammy Callahan and Tarek the Legend against Adam Cole, Davey Richards, Kyle O'Reilly, and Wheelman Tony Kazina. I would love to see that match. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's a promotion that very much, like, filled a niche there and was able to exist. I don't know why it closed or how it closed, but it definitely was, like, one. I mean, like, some of the event, Ricochet versus Billy Rock, when Ricochet was their current uh, cruiserweight champion, or junior heavyweights, they called it. That's a match I'm interested in because I, I like Billy Rock a lot. So uh, yeah, I I don't know after after this show which which leads oh no he us was in. not yeah <laughs> yes no rough night for Billy Rock we'll discuss it as we Mike I don't know about you I'm ready to chase the dragon I am as well as we mentioned before this was on September 9th, twenty eleven from the uh, uh the Salvation Army uh community center 
and started off with some backstage promos. This was a show that was not on iPay-Per-View. I know that there's some people that I like who have asked, like, okay, why is this show? Why have not seen the show? It was not on WWN Live. It was a show that they taped and released later on DVD, and that's probably why I didn't watch the show at the time because it was a DVD, and with as we've talked about before, their track records when they got the DVDs out was kind of suspect, and we'll get into later why there was a reason, especially for this show, why this would happen when we talk about the U.S. Indies, but the show opens up with backstage promos. First, it is Pac, AR Fox, and Swan backstage for the show, and he thinks Ricochet is focusing so much on the best flyer, but he will prove that he has the three best flyers here, and he'll win, and then Rich Swan, as he's been in Japan, speaks Japanese for a second which is a little abrupt. And then we go to John Davis. John Davis made a request. He wants a member of DTU tonight. He wants to face all the homegrown talent. And this week, and tonight he has a, he has Eric Cannon. He has a bad taste in his mouth from the last time he's been in the ring of DUF. And, or D, I wrote down my notes. It is DUF. But I wrote down my notes DTU. Yeah. That's look, why. <laughs> we did not get John Davis versus Flamito or John Davis versus what I really want, Rocky Lobo, on this show, which is a real shame. I would have preferred that over John Davis versus Eric Cannon. Now, is it uh, John Davis uh, versus 2013 Rocky Lobo, like a member of Millennials Rocky Lobo, or is it John Davis versus 2020 body guy Rocky Lobo who just works out now? Mike, I got news for you. Rocky Lobo was timeless. You give me any era of Rocky <laughs> Lobo, and I'm probably putting the damn strap on him. There we go. There we go. But he cuts like a promo, and John Davis, he's a. I, I'm watching the, this run. Uh, I'm reclaiming John Davis is good here in my personal mind. Never was a strong promo, very kind of soft-spoken guy. But like you like hear him, you're like, okay, John, you're going to do that. That's cool. That's cool. And then we go to the ring. I, 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 we, real quick, it just I know yeah. I know we went long on the timeline, but I, John Davis, how Gabe never got him a mouthpiece, just blows my mind. And it's one of he's those not things, a promo. I I mean, you know, we obviously a few weeks ago talked about the passing of Larry Sweeney, and maybe it's just the easy independent option to go. Oh, could you imagine if Larry Sweeney had this guy? But I mean, seriously, John Davis is coming across like a star on all of these shows, but he cannot talk. And it's weird. You know, Gabe has always had managers, and he never got this guy a manager. And I think it's a real a real bummer. Yeah, and it's maybe they thought that he could talk, but he really can't talk. And it's something that is very, very obvious there. And, I mean, Rich Swan speaking Japanese. It was interesting because uh, I, I thought it was kind of funny that, like, Air Fox was, like, nodding along, being polite. And then, like, Pac had, like, a look in his eye. It was like, oh, he's tr- – oh, I get what he's doing here. I'm not going to interrupt him here. It just was like, okay, this is definitely something. You do your first tour of Japan. You come back. You put the katakana in your Twitter candle, and you just – You got the Ribera jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess this is this is one of the things that Rich Swan did, but – that leads us to the opening match. It was the scene in their first match in DGUSA, that is Caleb Conley and Scott Reed, defeating the local talent of Remy Wilkins and Trip Cassie. Three minutes and 18 seconds with the obscene, which I forgot was their finisher until this match. <laughs> I've not gone back and watched Evolve to see the scene in the obscene, and this was just kind of like a squash match. Would uh, You just came off a weekend where you watched a lot of independent wrestling. Some of it good. It was Mike's big. It was Mike's big indie weekend. And where you can hear about that? Patreon.com backslash backslash everything elite. That's the address there. Uh, Hey, look, I I, I've got a few of those checks. I'd like to support the cause. Um, you watched a lot of independent wrestling this weekend. Some good, some bad. Yes. Would Mm -hmm. Scott Reed 
be the best guy on the indies in 2020? It would either be Scott Reed. He'd be in the conversation. Absolutely. Like Scott Reed on Family Food Dude presents pro wrestling. That's something I'm interested in seeing. Like Scott Reed going up against like Eric Royal. That would be a match I'm into. That sounds great. Even, I mean, look, Caleb Conley is not good in 2011. Talk to me about 2014, 2015 Caleb Conley. That was a guy I had a ton of stock in. And, and unfortunately, the premier athlete brand. Uh, look, look, I've got some fantasy booking notes about what the premier athlete could have, uh, premier athlete brand could have done. All right. Uh, <laughs> Conley, I don't know how much he wrestles now, but he's another guy that it's like you look at the Dan the Dan's of the world. It's like, how is Caleb Conley not getting booked on these shows? But if Scott Reed was still wrestling, I think, especially given the uh, Hoss division movement and all of the things that guys on the Indies seem to get over for now. I think Scott Reed just was uh, ahead of his time in a way, just a little too soon for him to break onto the scene. Well, it's clear that you do not watch NWA power as Caleb Conley is there. And he would have been there at, uh, and he would have been on dark this year, but he uh, did something to get pulled from dark. So, (laughs) But so so this match was just like a squash match, and uh, I I know Trip Cassidy is someone that's been around for a long time, but it just was that. And then after the match, Larry Dallas jumped the guardrail, had a microphone, couldn't hear anything he said. I mean, it's uh, it, it well, we're in the area of DGUSA where the uh, PA system was terrible, and he was escorted to the back because I guess they did enforce the thing that he he promised he would be gone from the company when Atu lost, and they were enforcing that rule here. God, sliding glass door moment. What if Larry Dallas is never in Drangate USA? I mean, there's a lot. Of, yeah. Hey, what about this Ricochet promo? So Ricochet, bless Ricochet's heart. He chose Shima and Tozawa. tonight's Because tonight's going to be all about Ricochet. He wanted to have his top partners with him to support him in the win. And, you know, it's a Ricochet promo. <laughs> this was not a very strong. Losing John Moxley and not using enough Chuck Taylor is definitely a mistake made at this point because, boy, I'm looking at these promos, and we're going to get to a couple a little rough ones as we go along the show, and this was not the most rough one. It's a bummer that Ricochet is sitting next to Shima, and Shima doesn't talk because Shima laughs during this promo, and I was like, oh, my God, yeah. he's the best promo in the world. Like, he just needs a kind of broken English promo right now, and I would retroactively award him best on interviews in the 2011 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. <laughs> he's so charismatic, and they left Ricochet to do the talking, which was a mistake. Akira Trizawa sitting right next to yes. him. Yes. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's something. It is something. And then that leads us to the debut of Uha Nation as he defeated Aaron Draven in two minutes and 42 seconds with a standing shooting star press. Uh, my, my big thing about this was you're trying to get Uha Nation over. I know Draven was someone that worked in the area. This really should have been like two moves and Uha just destroys him. Because Uha then did like a triple moons, a triple powerbomb the crowd popped hard for and then did the shooting star in one. I, I see your point. Um, I was not familiar with Aaron Draven before this match. Came away wondering what the hell happened to Aaron Draven. He seemed like a kid that could work. But, yeah, this is the debut for Uha, and it goes two minutes. And, and Draven, you know, beats him down for a second. But I was so smitten with Uha Nation after I watched this match. I mean, it was just so exciting to see this unknown, unproven guy step into the ring and just blow 
people's minds. They react huge to the triple power bomb. They react huge to the standing shooting star press that he does. It was just really nice to see a guy solidify himself on the independent scene from going from being an unknown to being a guy in one night. Yeah, and he really came out of nowhere. He was one of the uh, seminar guys, and it was something that I feel like is kind of interesting that like he came out of nowhere and became a star. And very soon after, he will be in Dragon Gate. <laughs> and you know, sadly, like Uha's time in DGUSA is not going to be long, but it's going to be impactful, and it's something that. You know, you look at him, we've, we've talked about the trade of talent that came over with this. He is not the Elvis Andrus of this group, but he definitely is someone who is a big player on the uh, Dragon Gate Texas Rangers trade. What, God, I love that you you continue to use such an, uh, an outstanding analogy when it comes to the Dragon Gate USA roster. And then after that, you know, after Uha steals the show in a sense, we, we have a, a Ronin promo. Mike, what happens here? So, this is something that, like, maybe because I missed this show, I was like, why didn't this, like, thing, like, make YouTube or anything like this? So, all the backstage promos pretty much happen in the same room, where there's, like, this really old-looking couch and books all around it. And it's Gargano and Taylor. They are sitting there. Johnny Gargano is really serious, and he wants to prove tonight in the tag that he could take out Yamato and become Freedom Gate champion. Uh, Chuck Taylor's reading a newspaper, and... He is just kind of just being Chuck Taylor, and he's not in his gear, and uh, Johnny Gargano tells him that he needs to shave his legs and put on his gear, but then Chuck says, I wear pants. Why would I sh- shave my legs? And then Gargano says, shave your legs, Chuck, and leaves the room. Look, I like Chuck Taylor. I like this promo, even, but Johnny Gargano, who debuted in Dragon USA as a comedy act, I mean, he turned it into a serious heel turn and then subsequent face turn rather soon after, but debuted as a comedy act. He is now in a position where he wants the world title, and we would see Chuck Taylor later on in the show say that he wants to open the Freedom Gate belt as well. I really wish Johnny Gargano would... In In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, "Ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club Slab Pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous round bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying hey look at some random cards whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. 
But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, I'm setting these things off. It's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You know, it's Chuck Taylor leading the promo, but I really wish Johnny Gargano would have separated himself from any and all comedy at this point. I I wanted Gargano to be that man on a mission. And for as much as I like Chuck Taylor, this promo really rubbed me the wrong way. I thought it was completely the wrong tone for Ronan to use at this point in time. And it's something that I was going to bring up much later. This does really feel like that after the first few months of Ronan, now we're seeing how Ronan is. And, you know, you're wondering about like the use of Ronan at this point. You're, you're, you already have Rich Swan as a member of uh junction three. will play off a lot more than the main event. will get to there, but this is definitely a time where like, you're wondering like, okay, what is the use of this group? And this promo does make it like I pop for it because I enjoy Chuck Taylor promos. But your point is valid there. Yeah, I just I just want Gargano to be tunnel vision, just completely focused on this title. And for you know, I look, I like the interplay between him and Chuck Taylor. It's a funny promo. I just think it's the wrong place and the wrong time to do it. All right. Yeah. No, I'm with you here. And I'll bring up a bigger point about Ronan after the main event. But then we have another match. It is John Davis versus Eric Cannon. He previewed this earlier. John Davis won with the three seconds around the world in 11 minutes and 45 seconds. And I think I like this match more than you, which is probably the first time in history that I've liked a John Davis match more than someone else. So you take it, you take it away, and I will talk about what I liked about it afterwards. Well, I like this match. I mean, I, you know, the first two matches are, are squash matches. I didn't throw a rating on them. I went, no. th- I went three stars with this match. It's, it's not bad. It is... I ultimately will never be able to fully accept a match like this happening under the Dragon Gate USA umbrella. Whereas even at the at the peak of grapple fuck, if this match happens and evolve, I think it's just a more appropriate place to have a match like that. I turn on a Dragon Gate USA show, even in an Indianapolis community center where the apron facing the hard cam was sliding off of the ring canvas for half the show, I still just want a more authentic Dragon Gate experience. Now, I liked these two, what they did. I thought they worked hard. I thought their crowd brawling was not lazy. I liked what they did working in front of the people. And then at the end... When Pinky Sanchez goes to dive on John Davis and Davis slides out of the way 
and then hits Pinky Sanchez with one of the five greatest pounces I've ever seen, which leads to the three seconds around the world and the finish, it ends the match on a really high note. I am just bothered by this specific match happening on the red and black canvas, knowing that it's Gate USA, knowing that Naruki Doi is on the same show as this match. It just bothers me a little bit. Okay, I, I totally think that's valid. I want three and a half stars. Really? I, yeah, and I like the fact that they brawled because it's because it's like those two guys like best thing. Like I don't like I've seen enough of Eric Cannon doing lucha in my life. He's decent at it, but it's not something I want. However, these two guys getting after it and just brawling and an all-time pounce that uh, – because Pinky Sanchez is at ringside that is delivered at Pinky Sanchez is incredible. But you're right. This is not a match that should, took place in Dragon Gate USA. This was a match that in this, in this uh, venue, not to be smirched, the great city of Indianapolis, this was an IWA and Mid-South match. Yes, and I, you know, I like IWA Mid-South. You, you could look at my Twitter. I did 30 days. When COVID first hit America, I did 30 days, 30 IWA Mid-South matches. I was like, this will take me through in this. <sighs> Not quite. Um, you're exactly right. It was an IWA Mid-South match. I just don't want that on this specific show. That's entirely fair, but it's something that, I just like the idea of this and the idea that like John da- John Davis, maybe the reason why I disliked John Davis so much was that he was such an outlier because he was not a dragon system kind of guy. So it is something that I just like watch and I'm like, okay, now I'm like, at the time I was like, why are you here? Well, why is this happening? This is not what Dragon Gate really should be. But now I'm like sitting back. I'm like, okay, these two guys are just brawling the heck out of each other. And I enjoyed that. So I, I totally get like, the mindset difference here, but I ended up really liking it. What did, what came afterwards though, case <laughs> I was going to ask, how do you feel about this? The scene in Larry Dallas are backstage. Uh, uh, then we, and as they're backstage, Caleb says that they are the tag team of 2012. I mean, you still got three more months left in the year guys. There's still going to be one more triple shot. Don't sell yourself short. So don't, don't just uh, completely do that. But then, uh, Larry Dallas says it comes in there and they kind of like play him lip service. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then they say that they're going to go get some girls and they leave the scene, the scene, Larry Dallas wanting the women of central Indiana. There's just a lot happening at this promo. I, I, they got their characters across. I understand who the scene is. It just terrifies me. <laughs> it's just that, you know, we're in this era now. You gotta just have to embrace it. We're in the air of the scene, and they will be the tag team of 2012. They've got some big matches coming up. I know one specifically that I can't wait to rewatch because it's just one of those nine years after the fact you go, oh my god, that match happened. <laughs> Absolutely. And then we have the uh, open invitation elimination match. First, Gregory Iron comes out. Uh, you did not mention him earlier. I guess he was a part of this match, but then Brody Lee inserted himself instead. Maybe. Yeah, he's not. I, or maybe. He's mentioned that he'll be on the Chicago show on the Newswires. There's nothing about him appearing in Indianapolis until he shows up on the show. Okay, so he comes out. Um, we'll get more into this at this time. He was someone that the first time that, like, at least the greater wrestling outside the Ohio era knew of him was because he, I don't remember what show CM Punk showed up at, but, but CM Punk as a baby champion showed up to an independent show and shouted him out. But then he comes out, then Blood Warriors comes out to trash him, and then they just completely like just do some uh ableist put downs kind of and then 
Brody cl- destroys him. They continue to destroy him. Uh, and then uh, Brody says he's now in the match, and they're ready to kind of start the match. And that starts the six-man open invitational elimination match case. Uh, any thoughts on the pre-match segment, which I was like, okay, this is happening. I'm not here for it. Uh, it it's, I mean, it's one of those you're obviously walking a fine line with Gregory Iron kind of no matter what you do. Because, again, it's it's one of those things where I, I think being a wrestling heel is very difficult uh, to not cross over into something that bothers people in real life that that takes them out of the moment when you're when you're dealing with Gregory Iron. I did specifically like that when Brody Lee came out, he said that Greg Iron got put over by CM Punk, but who cares cuz Brody Lee got put over by Kevin Nash. And I did really like that. Uh and then from there, you know, it, it everybody from Mike or it's Mike Seidel comes out, he eats shit from Brody Lee, Sugar Dunkerton comes out. Uh, he gets beat up by Tozawa and Doi. Flip Kendrick and Billy Rock, they get beaten up. And then BJ Whitmer comes out. And uh, from there, it is the open invitational elimination match, which, I mean, look, I you know, I thought Billy Rock looked really bad in this match. Uh, he kind of had gear like Tarzan Goto, which I liked. But everything he did uh, was not exactly flawlessly executed. And then, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Mike, what did you think about this match? Oh, I thought that the it just kind of was there. <laughs> like this felt like just like the John Davis match fray that they had at the two year anniversary show, which I was like, okay, you got over that John Davis is a beast. You got over that that uh, Brody Lee came back from his knee injury. It was a patella injury. I did try to look this up as we were recording to see if there's any mention about surgery. The problem was that his other knee injury he had before he left WWE was a patella injury as well. So you can't really find too much stuff about that. And then it's just like Whitmer comes out. Uh, the eliminations are uh, Brody uh, eliminates uh, Mike Seidel with a, a powerbomb. Rock backslid uh, Dunkerton. Brody eliminates Rock with a big boot. BJ's DQ for catching the chair that Ricochet threw and then attacked uh, and then attacked Brody with it. And then Brody wins against Flip Kendrick with a trap stock. It's a 12-minute match. It's listed as 12 minutes, but it's really like a 25-minute thing, and it just kind of ground the show to a halt to me. I went two and a quarter on it. It is. The, the BJ Whitmore elimination is really bad because Ricochet, it's bad. It, Ricochet throws this chair into the ring that is meant, I guess, to be caught by Brody Lee, but it's just it's not a good throw, and it, BJ Whitmore intercepts it, but it kind of looks like Ricochet is just... If you didn't know better, you would think Ricochet was turning on Brody Lee by handing BJ Whitmer this chair. It just, the execution of that was very poor. And then it's Brody Lee and Flip Kendrick. And in true Flip Kendrick fashion, he flips out of a Brody Lee choke slam, which looks awesome. And then he runs to the ropes and fucks up a springboard dive. And it is like, yep, that is Flip Kendrick. He does one thing. It is Flip Kendrick. He works his ass off. He is the definition of one step forward, two steps back. Right, yeah, and it just kind of, uh, like, Flip Kendrick, like, this is the Flip Kendrick that I remember, not the one that was, like, doing spots that probably pissed off everyone else because he was doing everyone's finishers, but, like, this was like that, and just went on kind of forever, and then, like, the thing was that Blood Warriors were sent to the back by Brody Lee when uh, BJ Whitmer came out and said, hey, let's do this, like, as an adult, so let's not... On the, this match, it, you're, five, you're five people, like, let's do that there, and then Ricochet comes out with a chair. Like, it's dumb. It, it makes dumb. no sense. And 
that's really all I could really think about this. Then we had Uha Nation backstage giving, oh, jeez, I love Uha. Like Uha is one of the guys that whenever I see on like a Dragon Gate show, I'm like, all oh, right, because everything Uha does rules. There's one thing that Uha Nation is not case, and what is that? I, Mike, I I'm afraid you're barking up the wrong tree. You might need to pivot real quick. But but what what are you thinking? He's not a great promo, but this is an adorable promo from him. Mike, like, like he, Mike, he Mike. does the Pledge of Allegiance as the promo, and it's so charming, but it's not a good promo. Mike, you need to put some R-E-S-P-E-C-K on this man's name, okay? Uha Nation says he is the sensation that is sweeping the nation, one nation under God with liberty and justice for no man. And I lost my mind for this. <laughs> Look... Was the execution there? Was it a John Moxley promo? No. Not quite. But oh my god, I loved what he brought to the table. Like, it's one of those, you know, it was like when Moxley debuted, quite honestly, where you just knew from the way he was presented, like, Gabe was like, oh my god, like, I, I found the guy. And granted, Uha has an entirely different skill set than Mox, but I. I feel a similar way that I think Gabe thought a similar way about just the potential of those two guys where again, Oh sure. It's not, it's you're right. It's not a great promo, but I don't care because he brought that to the table and I loved it. I was so in love with Uha nation after this show because it's he just, owns. he's one of those. I mean, how he has been screwed up as much as he has. I do not know because it just seemed like a layup. It just seemed like this is the guy that no matter what they do, he will succeed. And they've blown it with him even. And I just, God, I love Uha. For the four years he was associated with Gate. man, he was so good. Yeah, he, he's a guy that like comes out and you're like, okay, he, he does this. And if you've never known who he is or seen a match or any familiarity, he then blows your mind. He blows your mind because he's like, 260 pounds and does things that 260 pound guy especially at this time was not doing like it was just like incredible stuff and maybe maybe the way that they really should have packaged him in wwe was let him cut his uh pledge of allegiance promos because that maybe would have worked i could see Vince McMahon actually liking those promos and i would have I I put the belt on him i love that promo i really did <laughs> <laughs> liberty and justice for no man when he did that i was like uh, it was uh it was like the meme reaction where the guy slides across the screen when he's holding his face like in that rap battle i was like oh my god he just did it to him like that was the greatest thing i've ever heard oh jeez. And, and it gets even better because when he goes to dragon gate he gets the uh the genghis kong thing a uh, theme that just goes ooh ha ooh ha ooh ha ooh ha and you're just like the it's impossible to watch Dragon Era Uha Nation and not love him. No, I like, mean uh, the, the way they present him, and, and it's it's the it's it will sound like a cheap comparison, but I really think it is the right one. Where Dragon gets behind Uha to such an extent, he feels like in that universe because of the theme song, because of especially the way he's presented in Blood Warriors in his Japanese debut, which we'll talk about a few shows from now. It's a little Bob Sapp-esque, and I think just given Japan and just the way 
they look at race, quite honestly. You know, were they trying to make him Bob Sapp? No. Was the was the execution of it similar? I think absolutely, where he almost felt like a superstar within their own promotion. I, I love Uha. I'm so glad we get to watch some of his stuff. Yeah, and, and it's something where he, with everything of Uha, and I guess this is, this is going to become the Uha podcast for the next <laughs> for the next while, uh, it, it's something where like he is so intensely likable. And it's something that it's not even like in his promos. He just has like a charisma that like you you like look at me. It's like oh he should be like the babyface star in any promotion. Like he does awesome stuff. He comes in there and especially when he gets the theme music, you're like okay yeah no I love Uha Nation. It's easy to see why like why he's Akira Tozawa's best friend. You know like I that is a friendship that I think has lasted the past time. And I can easily remember like imagine like sixty year old. Uha, or 70-year-old Uha Nation and Kirtozawa at the wrestling retirement home. Maybe they get to go back to Kobe for this. Like, I feel like they should, where the two of them are in, like, in the rocking chairs just kind of, like, doing their shaker bottle tricks. And it's just like, okay, these guys are... And, and like, their kids are coming up and it goes like, oh, Uncle Kira, Uncle Uha. And it's just, like, the most charming thing in the world. Like, how can't you love Uha Nation? That is quite the visual, but Mike, I'm Mike, I'm glad you took us there. I am glad you took us there. That was very Don't you fun. think that's going to happen? Don't you think those two... Those two are going to be just like friends for life. And they became friends for life. Like, imagine, like, this might have been the, the day that Kirtozawa met Uha Nation. Yeah, that's true. You- that's, that's, that's a good point. I mean, again, he's an unknown guy. I mean, there's stuff we'll talk about with the final triple shot of 2011, where you can see outside of Dragon Gate USA the rise of Uha. But he's, I mean, he's an unknown at this point. He, he's, you know, his cage match, it's not like there's a laundry list of promotions that he worked before this show. It's, you know, uh, some Georgia indies, an IWA Mid-South match on a tryout show that I'd like to hunt down from 2010. And then it's it's this. He pops up in Indiana, of all places, and just destroys. It's awesome. And it's something where I believe, because I don't know if Air Fox was trained by him, but I believe he might be the first WWA4 big trainee other than uh, Heath Slater. Like, Yeah, I did not realize like, I did not realize Slater came through that school, but Uha, at least for me, is the one that put that school on the map. And then, you know, yeah. they've obviously had success ever since, but uh, I, I knew about that scene directly through Uha. Yeah, and it turns out Air Fox was trained by Mr. Hughes. So gotcha. The, it, so, so, like, this is kind of like, if you're someone that, like, nowadays, you, like, you see the Skulk members that ended up in NXT and you look at like the people that have been picked up in AEW, this is kind of the start of that nine years ago, which is wild for me to think like that just kind of just snapped me right now. All right. We need to get back to the show itself before I start more thinking about the, like the idea of Uha nation and Kirchizawa at like each other's kids, christenings and things like this. And just the, just the wholesome friendship. Like that's well, we have a lot of negative masculinity in the world. There's no negative masculinity in that friendship. No, well, well said. All right, so getting to another match that you know that th- this is a fight of men as Naruki Doi faced Sammy Callahan, and Naruki Doi defeated Sammy Callahan with a Bakatari sliding kick. And Sammy Callahan is we- we've gone up about like not a good person, but Naruki Doi has probably Sammy Callahan's best match of the promotion here at this point. 
I went four and a quarter stars on this. I loved it. Wow. Okay. You like this show more than I did. Um, I like this show. Well, I, I wish I that they show did too. a lot I, more shows. I, I had seen this show before and really liked it, but I am really surprised you're higher than the, on this than I am. It's also worth saying, I saw the show right after I watched the two Fukuoka shows <laughs> that, we rec- that we recorded about the August Fukuoka double shot that was as dry as a plain rice cake. So... Uh, what fascinates me here is that Callahan, he had a match with Masato Yoshino that was just okay. But right. you look at his matches against Akira Tozawa, which I believe I gave four stars to, and then his Masaki Mochizuki match, which I, I should have given that four, if not four and a quarter, because as time has gone on, I, I that match sticks with me as one that I really love. He brings it against the Japanese talent. Now, do I think Drangi would have ever brought him over? No, and it was out of no. the question because he was, you know, in 2012 he starts working and getting a pretty big push for Big Japan. So it just, for a number of reasons, it wouldn't happen. But Callahan brings it against the Drangate guys, and it is awesome to see. I love this era of Sammy Callahan. I love Callahan up until he gets signed. And then from there, it's hit or miss when he returned back to the Indies. But I was a, a very big Sammy Callahan supporter uh, through 2013. And, you know, again, I you know, when AAW runs, I watch him monthly. And again, it's really hit or miss. But when he hits, I, he's still he still has excellent matches in him. But I watched this match, Mike, and I have a very, very important question for you. Because we've okay. heard American wrestlers talk about how much they hated wrestling Naruki Doi because Doi would pepper them with his slaps to the face, and it is it is so present in this match that Doi is beating Sammy Callahan up. So I ask you, Mike, would you rather take a series of slaps to the face from Naruki Doi, or would you rather get spit on by Sammy Callahan? Oh, slapped in the face. Yeah, right? Slapped in the face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, come on, come on. Sammy Callahan dips. Like, come on, no, 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 no. Here's my case on this being a four and a quarter star match, and we've talked about Sammy Callahan. Naruki Doi understands how to work with these American wrestlers that do not necessarily fit into what the Dragon System style is. We we saw him in the Farewell Weekend with John Moxley, just like have like this touring champion kind of match with John Moxley, and he brings it again here, and he's just someone that like gets it, and maybe it is something that the slaps are extra peppered because Sammy works stiff. And Naruki was like, oh, okay, we're doing this. All right, that's fine with me. Slaps you 30 times in the face. And it just kind of worked with this. And at the same time, is like he got the crowd into buying the near falls. Like he, like he would make sure to time out his kick out so well that at a certain point, like I knew Naruki Doi was going to win this match. Like not even like as a show, I had no memory of him. It's like, oh, Naruki Doi is going to win this match. But you end up buying into the near falls and then – Simi Callahan kicks out of the first Bakatari sliding kick. And at that point, I'm like, okay, is he going to muscular bomb him? No, he does the super doys fives and a second Bakatari sliding kick, and he goes down. But I got invested in this match a lot more than I ever thought I'd be invested in a Simi Callahan match. And I think a lot of that goes to Naruki Doi. Yeah, Doi is, I mean, Doi is excellent. And it makes sense that he's the guy that really embraces working with Americans, even if they hated it, because Doi is such a big proponent of American wrestling. What I loved was the finish where Doi hits a, a, a Doi 5 from the middle rope 
And for whatever reason, it just looked like he put a little extra emphasis on that Doi fives, and then he blows Callahan's head off with a Bakatare for the win. It is. I went three and three quarters with it. I I do not begrudge you for your rating at all. I think you're you're more than you know in your lane to give it four and a quarter. Really good stuff from these two. Yeah, yeah. This is in the interest of part of the card, that the exception of the next match, I really was into the show. Again, this might be what I watched before it, and I'm like, I need to watch something real good. When we're recording this, we're recording this on the 25th. This was like the first time I was like, hey, Case, uh, do you want to do the news update first? Because then I will be in a good mood in the show on. And you're like, yeah, okay, I was thinking that too. This is like, this show put a smile on my face, even though there was only 175 people at the show. Well, uh, cage and, match. and given the the Northeast triple shot, which I think ended on a strong note, but it was, right. you know, Mania weekend wasn't exactly a smashing success. And then the United Northeast weekend. triple and United weekend. I liked the first two shows a lot and then did not like the third show at all. It, you know, it's been, it, it's 2011 Dragon Gate USA is not the way I remember it. I kind of looked at this year as the beacon of Dragon Gate USA that like people talk about the first three shows, but it's 2011 is where the really good stuff is. And while there's been a lot of high level matches, that really hasn't been the case. Now looking ahead, I think the six shows that we end the year on, you know, this show, the next two, and then the the final triple shot, there's a lot of good stuff there, but 2011 is not as strong as I thought it was, and Chasing the Dragon is a real high point in this calendar year. Yeah, it's a shame. They drew about 175. Cage match, 448. (laughs) Even at this point, you could tell that the uh, Dragon Gate office was going, huh, okay, we're doing this one here, okay, fine, Uh, well, okay. (laughs) <laughs> and then we had two promos. The first one's for WWN Live. Then case, you talk, we talked about the United Weekend. The finale is finally out on DVD eight months later. Yes, yes. Uh, it, rejoice. Rejoice. And then we had Lewis Linden versus Pinky Sanchez. Pinky Sanchez won in seven minutes with a burning hammer. Uh, this match uh, sucked. Like, I hated this match. Two stars, which, you know... It's been a while since I've had like a sub two and a half star match on a GGUSA show. Lewis Linden's theme was a jam though, but I hated this match. I went two and three quarters, did not hate it as much as you, but I do hate Pinky Sanchez using a burning hammer as his finish. That is not his move, and it like it fits no part of Pinky Sanchez to use a burning hammer. Yeah, I, I do have a note that I written down. I don't remember what this was from. And, and the thing is, I wonder what Masato Yoshino thought of Pinky. <laughs> just, 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 just a, yeah, just a thought. I mean, sometimes when the like matches aren't fun, I like my my mind mind goes to different places. We already heard me talking about uh, how characters out and who our nation's relationship is going to be in thirty years. But uh, Pinky then calls out Sabu, and then I cringe because I remember that we're getting a whole bunch of Sabu. And then tomorrow night, John Davis says he's going to face the next one of the homegrown stars. He's going to face Rich Swan. And that led us to Gargano and Taylor of Ronin versus Masato Yoshino and Yamato of Junction 3. Uh, Junction 3 won in 18 minutes and 5 seconds. Gargano, before the match, cut a promo saying that he knows that he can beat Yamato for the belt and he'll tap him out. He says that Chuck and Swan will then take the belts from Yoshino and Pac, but then Chuck disagreed and said, I'm going for the Freeman Gate title as well. And that kicked off this match. What an awesome match. I loved this. The The finish was... Well, okay, so... Uh, Johnny Gargano has Yamato locked into the Gargano escape, and then Yoshino has Chuck Taylor locked into Sol Naciente. And Chuck Taylor gives up. Like, I, I completely follow what's happening, and then everybody froze, 
And I put that on the referee, as I think the referee screwed something up. But the finish made sense to me. Like, I I didn't understand. Everybody kind of stood still for a second, and I didn't understand why, because I was comprehending what was happening. So I kind of chalked that one up to the referee, which I, I don't know if it is or isn't fair, but I know as a viewer... I was able to follow along, but the guys in the ring looked confused, which I just, I I haven't seen a lot of that. So you can say maybe the finish wasn't perfect, but again, like they, I think everything went to plan and then there was just a a 20 second period of awkwardness, but oh my God, I, uh, Mike, I mean, where did you stand on this tag? I went four stars with it. I went three and three quarters. The uh, finish bummed me out a lot because it did take me a moment and I was like, oh, the crowd doesn't understand that even though this is a... This is Lucha Tag Rules and Dragon Gate, though that the it still is the people in the match that were the official fall was between Yoshino and Yamato, or Yoshino and Taylor. They were the uh, they were the active participants there, and that kind of took me down a little bit. It was it was kind of deflating for me that finish, to be honest. But the rest of this match was real interesting because you had a whole lot of like this thing about like Gargano and Taylor about how they've been kind of treated. And this is a very divergent point. This card is a very divergent point and how the two of them are kind of treated here. And I found that very fascinating in this. And, you know, like we talked a little bit earlier about Yamato and how he kind of falls apart and kind of falls into the cracks in junction three. My first thought was, Oh yeah, no Yamato at this point, he kind of already feels like he's lost some of that charisma here. It's weird, but I, I completely agree. And I just, I like, he is a better heel than a babyface, but it's not like he's a bad babyface. But there's something about him being in Junction 3 that just doesn't feel right. Which, I don't know, maybe in the long run that helped. Because, you know, we, we have the the hindsight now to say, well, you know, Gargano's eventually going to beat him for the title and that worked out alright. And maybe if it was a Shimo holding the belt or a Tozawa or even a Pac, you know, one of these high-level Gate stars, maybe it wouldn't have come across so well, but, you know, I, I think it's fair to say, and we'll rewatch it five weeks from now, but off the top of my head, the Gargano title win comes across incredibly well, and Gargano looks great because of it. So maybe Yamato, for whatever reason, being a peg down from where he normally is, was a blessing in disguise specifically for Gate USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting also, like, in this match, Taylor took almost all the heat. Taylor was the one selling, and it was Gargano coming in and being the one that clearing house and showing that he was on the other guy's level. And it's just interesting, like, the divergent thing, because they do build up Gargano to such a way that, like, after this show, you really do feel like, oh, we are, it's a countdown, really. Like, you do kind of feel like, like, even, like, rewatching this and knowing what happens, I'm like, oh, no, they, this was the end point. Like, you can tell how clear it was there. And maybe Yamato being, like, there and and kind of just being the champion is the right move here. And it's okay that he fell in the cracks. So I think you're right about that. It's a, it's a great match. Again, I don't understand why the finish got screwed up because I knew what was happening and the four wrestlers didn't seem to know. But I could look past that. And I, I would put this match on the spreadsheet. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, one other thing. I know he obviously doesn't do this, and I don't expect him to do it for the next three months. Another space was such a cool move. Which one? Yes. Breaks, which one is that? 
that's where he goes for the head scissors and then turns it into a, a DDT where he flips backwards. It basically looks like the Destino, but it's like a cross-axis uh, Destino. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, yo, I mean, Yoshino does stuff that literally no one else can do, and that is, it, it's a, it's funny to think that, you know, a guy like Yoshino has moves that he has just kept in his back pocket because he's so innovative. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just was something that I saw it, and it was, and of course you have like Taylor, who's a great bass, and Gargano, who's not bad as well. But like seeing him do, it, I'm like, damn, Masato Yoshino, you are someone that is singular, and seeing that did that. After the match, Yamato grabbed the microphone and he said, "You know what? Both of you guys can challenge me." So he's laid, he's laid the belt out. He said, "Like, all right, I'll take both of you guys on." So if it does even feel like that, Taylor is being kind of sidelined. Yamato made a point of saying, "Both of you guys can challenge me," and now we have the thing that kind of in a way, who is going to be the Ronin person to take the belt? And uh, that, I did get that vibe here. Did you get that at all from that? Or is it just me just like fan booking in my head? No, I, I really like the angle here. My only issue is given how poorly Ronin has been booked, I would have let this weekend progress a little bit, have Gargano and Taylor. I don't know what happens on the next two shows. I'm assuming, at least hoping, they win one, if not both, of their upcoming matches. I would have done the same angle in Milwaukee. Now, I get it. Yamato isn't anywhere near Gargano and Taylor on that Milwaukee show, which concludes this triple shot. I just would have had Ronan build a little bit more momentum before announcing this angle, which I thought came across well. That's fair. That is entirely fair. Then we go backstage with BJ Whitmer, who said, they said I had to win to stay in the company. However, I, I'm going to come back and get Brody Lee, which... You know, effective. We'll see how that goes for him. And then we had the main event. It's a Captain's Fall match with the uh, high flyer team of Pac and Rich Swan, both of Junction 3, Rich Swan also of Ronin, and AR Fox versus the Blood Warriors team of Ricochet, Shima, and Tozawa. If you're someone who's not familiar with this style of matches, it does not happen that much out of Mexico nowadays. The only fall that matters is between the captains. Like, either... Ricochet or Pack has to take the fall, and then the match ends, and they lose. Anyone else that does this in Mexico, they will eliminate people in falls, but it does not matter until you pin or submit the captain, and those captains were Pack and Ricochet, and then it ended up being a... This was a, not as long of a match as I thought it was, like, coming in here for this, because, like, usually captains fall matches take for a long time. This was 17 minutes and 36 seconds with Ricochet getting the direct fall on Pack with the 6.30 splash. Mike, I love this match so much. I, oh, it's awesome. I just, th- this is what I hope AEW, just to frame it in the modern day, what I hope they can lean into because there has been no American wrestling company, even Dragon Gate USA, because they just didn't have the roster or the talent to do this with, that has truly leaned in to using the six-man tag match as a proper storytelling tool. And what is so great about this match is, yes, you've got Tozawa, who's white hot at the time, and he's great in this match. And you've got Shima as a heel, who was excellent. AR Fox is in a position where he can thrive. He's there to do flips and to get out of the ring. It works great for him. Rich Swan, who spent three months in Japan, I mean, it's like watching a different human wrestle. His his improvement from the Northeast triple shot in June to now, it, it's a, a 100% improvement. He's maxed out all of his stats compared to where he was in June. But the 
best thing about this match is the interactions between Pac and Ricochet. And the only word that I can use to describe what they were doing, they were very chippy with one another. This wasn't the blow-off. This wasn't the pinnacle of the blood feud. This is like two NBA teams getting into a bit of of a shouting match on a Christmas Day NBA game. And you know they're going to see each other in the playoffs and things are going to be even more heated. This is not the final stake in their feud. But they just chipped at each other and chipped away at this feud in, in such a way that I just don't understand how this isn't the primary form of storytelling in wrestling. I, I, I mean, this is what I want. This is a match of the year contender. I want four and a half with it. There will be very few matches in this company that are better this calendar year. It would make my best of Dragon USA history DVD. And it is on the back of Pac and Ricochet telling a precise story and knowing exactly what they're doing with it. Yeah, and this is a match that, since it does not happen often in the United States, like, I can't remember the other Captain's Fall match happening in the United States, can you? Like, I don't know of many of those that happened. The crowd got the fall, the, the concept. It's not a complicated concept. It's just they have such a huge feud. It's you and your guys versus him and his guys, but we are the only people that we we are proving which one of us is better of our gang. And they just built to that, and the crowd got it. And I felt like that both Lenny Leonard and Rob Naylor were excellent of like educating for people who aren't too familiar with it. I want four and a half too. And it's something that like Swan goes to Japan and comes back. And we talked a little bit about this before. And he's just already like three months in, he's already completely gone from being a decent young wrestler with a lot of upside to being a fully fledged star. And it's something that, like, when you see him there, like, in the past, he would be someone that, like, other than, like, the first weekend where he was inexplicably over in Massachusetts, he kind of felt like, at least how they presented him, as, like, the lesser member of Ronin. Now he's his own person. And he comes out here with the, uh, he comes out here wearing the Junction 3 tights. He comes out here already, like, packing on the muscle. And he fits. And Air Fox, they find the ways you use Air Fox at such a level, because he has not had that, and he's still very much a raw prospect and then you have the you have this blood warriors team that they've only been together truly for about three months at this time and they are just such a cohesive unit the way that both tozawa and uh, shima build up to the finish where it was a german suplex from tozawa going right into the shrine from shima laying him right out for the 630 from ricochet just an exceptional ending of this match and they had like this really insane like near fall going before this that was a Low main pain, which was incredibly protected at this time, at least in UGUSA. Like, like he, like Gabe made sure that, like when Air Fox did it, he won the match right afterwards because of how ridiculous the move is. And then Stringboard 450, and the crowd completely bonded that near fall. And it's just one of those things that this absolutely might end up being. I don't think I've had a four and three quarters match this year in Dragon Gate USA in 2011. This might end up being the, the match of the year in 2011. And I'm excited to see how the the remaining five shows go because this does seem like that that they're finally maybe I know last week I said that they maybe leveled out the nosedive, but in the show like this, they're starting to creep back up a little bit in my mind. Well, it, it's the weird reality that Dragon Gate USA is living in where right. you look at, you look at the undercard and it's 
you know, Caleb Conley and Scott Reed, who, look, I like, but it's Caleb Conley and Scott Reed. It's uh, John Davis. It's Eric Cannon. B.J. Whitmer is on this show. And the unfortunate aspect of it is we want Drangit USA. I think you and I would both agree. We would have loved if they went head-on into these Drangate six-mans more often, but that completely depletes the work rate effort on this card. Like, I, I, you know, we don't see a Japanese proper talent until, if you, you know, if you want to count Brody Lee, that's one thing, but it's Naruki Doi on the fifth match on the show against Sammy Callahan. You go four matches where you don't have a Japanese guy on a Drangate USA show, and that is because they're all loaded into the last two matches between Yoshino, Yamato, Pac, Tozawa, and Shima. And it's just, it, it's a weird situation to be in where I, I think if they could have marketed the undercards as something better or just put more matches on the pre-shows, I don't know what it is. I could see someone looking at this card and just looking at the first four matches and going, well, I'm not going to watch that. I don't care. But then when the real talent is on display, your Callahan versus Doi, your Ronin versus Junction 3 into that main event, it's like, yeah, this is the promotion I want. And maybe, you know, you do the scene in a squash match and you do Uha. And it's the frustrating thing is... All of this stuff, I guess, fits on the show because even Eric Cannon versus John Davis is a nice story and a prolonged feud, but it's not a Drangate USA show match. It just doesn't fit with the idea and the vision that this promotion laid forth. Now, I know you have to adapt and change. I just don't know what to do about that because if I'm telling someone, hey, you got to watch this great, this great Drangate USA show, you know, you'll never believe the main event. And then they see John Davis versus Eric Cannon as the third match of the show. I would understand their reservation. Yeah, yeah. And maybe how this is, is we saw the independent talent that were on the first few shows. We saw who they had, and there was like a distinct thing of, all right, we had the Young Bucks. We had Brian Kendrick, we had John Moxleman, we had Davey Richards, and then we had like the next generation, the next tier back of, we have all the Chikara guys. And that's gone. And maybe it is that when we talk about the US Indies, how things were really kind of like getting consolidated this time. Sinclair will have bought and has signed most of their people at this point. So when you, like, you look at all this, no wonder it was only able to get 175 people. And you know, all 175 people, like they were chanting, please come back for this, for that, when they were pretty much dead up until the point that Naruki Doi came out. The, the, they were yes. into Uha, but they were pretty much like that. this. And at a certain point there, it's like maybe with like the financials, and now it's gotten to a point really where they kind of need to hope to get about 300 people per show, and this one barely cleared half of it. But maybe this is like part of the wrestling industry and then part of the economics kind of came in at this point. Because in 2011, we're still really away. And there will be people that are hitting the indie scene that we'll talk about when we look at the, how the U.S. companies are. But you like look at this and like, yeah, no, no, no wonder people saw like the first half of this card and said, nah, I'm good. 
And no wonder this probably took forever to come out on DVD because no one's going to be super interested in openers like that and the fact that there was two straight squash matches before getting to anything close to competition. And then it was then it was John Davis versus Eric Cannon when you could see that kind of stuff on like IW Mid-South or you could see that stuff CZW or I know Cannon did a little bit PWG, but you would see other things happening in PWG at that time too. With all that being said, I just know my viewing habits and any company that is putting on a main event of that quality, I would support. And that is, you know, the, the redeeming factor of Dragon Gate USA. Even with the complicated undercard and the messy aura surrounding the promotion, that main event makes this entire series worth it. Absolutely. And closing out the show, there's two more things. This was a really heavy promo and segue thing for something that was related, released much later on DVD, by the way. Yes. Like, so after the match, uh, uh, immediately uh, Blood Warriors try to are clearing the ring, and then Junction Three try to make a save, but then Doi and Lee came out to completely overwhelm them. Then Chuck Taylor and Gargano come out, and then they were able to clear the ring. And the big thing is, are you Ronin or are you Junction Three? Are you Ronin Junction Three to Rich Swan? And it ends with like a promo thing where Chuck Swan says, that's cool. I'm going for the title. You two go for the tag titles. And then he super kicked uh, 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 Masato Yoshino and left the ring. And Pac was going like, what are you doing here? Where like, like He was trying to figure out what was going on with Rich Swan. But Rich Swan walks to the back with a junk, with the Ronin, argues with him all the way out. And it ends with like a incomprehensible go home promo. And that's an interesting thing that they did here because there was something earlier on the card saying that Junction 3 and Ronan were loosely aligned because of Rich Swan, and it seems like already that's falling apart. I, yes, I, I can see maybe it was a little too soon to do that when you stated that they had a loose working agreement. I thought this angle came across really well because Swan yeah. is in an interesting position where, again, he's in two units now, and I, I'm glad they made mention of that. And I... I don't know where that angle ends up and kind of where Swan goes from this. So I'm really excited to see that because this is now a story that I don't really remember and I'm invested because I like the the start of this angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it does like for a while I was thinking about coming in here and say like, oh, should maybe have uh, Ronan be the American representative of jo- Junction 3 at this point, but... I like that they did this so that took that thought completely out of my mind because for a while I was like, maybe it would have been better for Ronan if they were like, oh, they're the Junction 3 affiliates, you know, like and have them like linked up there so it wouldn't be seen as weak. But nope, that's not happening. And actually, I'm interested to see where this go to. And then we have a post-show DUF thing where Sammy is puking and uh, he is pissed off because of Naruki Doi and he's really, and then he's still pissed off about Air Fox. Eric Cannon's eating nachos. He slaps nachos out of the way, Sammy. And uh, not Sammy, sorry. Uh, Pinky Sanchez then starts eating the nachos that have fallen on the ground outside, and Sammy flips out, saying he should be focusing on Sabu. And that ends the show. I was following along with Kevin Ford's 411 review and saw that he began a sentence with Sammy Callahan is puking outside, and that is when I exited the show, and I did not watch that final promo. Yeah, you're not missing it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for Chasing the Dragon 2011. In Indianapolis, it is a show that happened. It was a show of contrasts, very much a show of contrasts. But we have a main event like that, and using a stipulation match like that so well, I I mean, this it's going to be hard for a match to top that in 2011 for Dragon Gate USA. 
Mike, next week we go back to the Congress Theater in Chicago, Illinois for Dragon Gate USA Untouchable 2011 and a show that features the scene against the Kentucky Buffet and Alex Castle and Matt Cage, John Davis versus Rich Swan, Pac versus Ricochet, the debut of Sabu as he teams with A.R. Fox in a no-disqualification tag match against Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez. Johnny Gargano wrestles Akira Tozawa. There is a four-way match with uh, unit representation with Blood Warriors, Junction 3, Ronin, and the DUF as Naruki Doi, Masato Yoshino, Chuck Taylor, and Sammy Callahan square off. In your main event, open the Freedom Gate title on the line, Yamato defense against Shima. I am looking forward to this show. Yeah, I'm super stoked for it. I'm not super stoked for Sabu, but interesting thing, even though like the show is like the next night and it's like what three hours between Indianapolis and Chicago. Yes. Like, not any mention building up the match that Yamato would have against Shima the next night. That's true. You know? Yeah, that's something I hadn't thought about. You're, but you're you're right. I don't even remember mention of it on commentary. It's it feels very vacuumized. I mean, the show feels kind of vacuumized in that way. You know. With how they release DVDs, if I've complained about this episode, you know, makes sense. Well, well, okay, I, I guess I can end with this, that, you know, this show certainly looks bad from a production standpoint, uh, sure. especially compared to just the early shows and even the first WrestleMania weekend, which is not like it drew well, but the, the building was very nice. This show looks bad. If Dragon Gate USA was able to fill the Congress Theater and uh, fill wherever they ran in Milwaukee, and they were still having these really hot crowds. This, as a Road 2 show, in a sense, would be awesome. And I wish that's maybe something that would have been more financially viable for them, is uh, kind of that, you know, maybe that first show of a Triple Shot weekend is just a little bit different. And they, you know, I, I don't think... I, I don't know entirely know what I'm trying to say. I, I liked this show a lot, and I think there's a version of Dragon Gate USA that could exist where they really experiment with this first show of the triple shot and then deliver two home runs later on in the weekends. And, and maybe that contradicts what I said about the talent earlier, but that idea is just now coming into my mind. That No, I get what you're ma- saying. Maybe I'm, o- maybe I'm okay with it because it, it doesn't exactly bleed over into the Chicago show. That Chicago show is loaded from top to bottom. No, no, you're absolutely right about that, and I think that's a good point. Like, th- if this was a Road 2 show, this would have been an excellent Road 2 show if it's a surprising main event. Yeah, I think you know? that's a good way of describing it. And I think that's a good way to go out on this. Case, anything else you wanted to bring up before we get out of here? That is all I've got, Mike. We have chased the dragon in my hometown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, I'm, now I'm imagining what your reaction would have been if you knew that the show happened and you went to this show. Like, how how melted would your brain be at with the Captain's Fall main event? Oh, God. I, well, I would have been standing and pacing. I, I mean, it would have been uh, just a, a <laughs> marvelous, marvelous thing to witness in person. I'm very, very disappointed that I have not seen Dragon Gate talent up close and in living color. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, we're going to get to the point where actually, like, the only shows I got to see in person. And I, I'm going to be interested to see, like, how my memories go with that. I can only imagine, like... You, you've been 12, right? Or they're about 12. I would have been 12 point. years old, yes. Look at me. It's because I remember you, the, the comment you made about me remembering the Dreamcast and me feeling profoundly old <laughs> at that very moment. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, if I was 12-year-old and saw this, it would break my mind. And it would have been something that, you know, that the rest of my life would have been forfeit at that point or my life before that would have been a, a life of, of accident. And now I'm, now I'm leading, now I'm watching my life on this new path. 
that simile got completely away from me there. Anyways. <laughs> Land the plane, Mike. Land the Land, plane. Yeah, we're coming for the landing here. Uh, you could follow the podcast at Open Voice Gate. You can follow Case at underscore in your case. You can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. And for Case, I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time and open the Voice Gate. Rewind and rewatch.